The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Some of you may have heard the name Johnny Erickson Tata. Um, Johnny was a very athletic teenage girl. Uh, she loved to hike, she loved to swim, but tragedy struck when she was late in her teenage years. She was diving into the Chesapeake Bay when she, uh, she misjudged the depth of the water and she was paralyzed from the shoulders down. And as she looks back on that time and the difficulty of that tragedy, she writes this with honesty. She said, I had so many questions. I believed in God, but I was angry with him. How could my circumstance be a demonstration of his love and power? Surely he could have stopped it from happening. How can permanent lifelong paralysis be a part of his loving plan for me? Unless I found answers, I didn't see how this God could be worthy of my trust. This past week, you may have been asking similar questions. People in Newtown, Connecticut, I'm sure were asking these questions. This week, we were smacked in the face with the reality that we live in a fallen and broken world. You may be able to recall the images that you've seen on TV of parents running to the fire station, of heartache setting in as a father falls to the ground. It's a reminder that this world is not all that it should be or could be or will be. This past week, I received a text Friday night from, um, from Polly Olson, and it said, my brother was in an accident, and he's going in for surgery pray that he will walk. Saturday, I talked to Polly, and her, her brother um, was paralyzed and will never be able to walk again apart from the miracle of God and has minimal use of his hands. Tonight, I'm going to be speaking to those who have lost a child in the womb or at an in infancy. And so no matter how much we try to stick our head in the sand, no matter how much we try to put on a happy face, there are weeks where the reality is just too overcoming, that this world is fallen and it's broken. And the question is, is there any hope in the fallen and broken world? Let's just take a minute to pray for these scenarios that I shared with you this morning, but also to prepare our heart for God's word as we come on a Sunday that's a very heavy, heavy day. Pray with me if you would. God, we we come to you today, Lord, not knowing all the answers, but with lots of questions, Lord. God, we do pray for those families in Connecticut who are suffering great loss, Lord. We pray that they will be comforted, Lord God, in this tragedy, that they would draw near to you in this time, God, and that you, they see you are even good, even in the midst of this, Lord. We pray for Polly's brother, Lord. We pray for healing God. We pray that he will indeed walk again. But we pray more that the God of comfort would come into his life in a powerful, powerful way, Lord. God, we also pray for those families who at this Christmas season are grieving a loss of a loved one, Lord, whether in infancy or in the womb or even as an adult, that you would be with them, Lord, be by their side, Show them your grace, your tenderness, even in moments like these, Lord. 
God, as we come to your word today, we pray that you would instruct us and move us and change us and show us the hope that we have in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you would, please open up to John chapter 5. It is page 890 in the Red Bible, page 1309 in the Children's Bible. Just to remind you what happened just prior to this, it's, it's all part of one story, but Jesus walks straight into the fallenness of humanity. He walks to the pool at Bethesda where there are paralytics surrounding this pool and invalids, and they are surrounding this magical pool, hoping that when the water's stirred, they'll get in and they'll be healed. And so Jesus walks into this horrific situation, and he comes to a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus says to the man, get up, take your bed, and walk. And we see that at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And then we are told that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. You know, Jesus could have done this any day of the week, but Jesus did this on a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who was healed, it is a Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. If you remember, we talked through how Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath law of God, but he was breaking the extra Sabbath laws that these men made. 39 Sabbath laws added to the scriptures so that people could measure their exterior performance to gain acceptance before God. 39 extra biblical laws so that they could judge those who didn't follow their rules and persecute them. And that's exactly what they wanted to do with Jesus. They wanted to persecute him because he didn't follow their laws. But we see even today, they want to kill him. And so that's where we get into this passage. In John chapter 5, verse 15, we'll start with the healed paralytic. So John five fifteen through 30. Read along with me if you would. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was, the Jew, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even claiming God his own father, making him equal with God. So Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you, mar- so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself 
And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. As we look at this passage, verse 17 and 18 really set up the thrust of what Jesus is communicating. So I just want to walk through that slowly with you again. Verse 17 says, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. You know, our 21st century ears hear that and it doesn't seem too confrontational, too involved. But the Jews hear it and we read in verse 18 that the Jews, because of this, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus saying, my father, is suggesting a special relationship with God. In the, in the context of a worship service, the Jews probably would have said, our father, but Jesus says, my father. Jesus doesn't say he is a son of God. He says he is the son of God, and they recognize that the words of Jesus are blaspheme. And they absolutely are, unless they are true. And so this tension builds between Jesus and the Jews. And you expect Jesus to respond in such a way to cool it off, right? But Jesus just pours gasoline on the fire. And he continues to talk about the relationship between the Father and the Son. And how the Son has authority over them. And how the Son has authority over life and judgment. And so they're just absolutely furious. Now, as we walk in this fallen world, we talked about how we ask questions like, where is God in this? How can God be good and let these bad and horrible things happen in the world and in our life? And while you probably won't get a full and satisfactory answer today. There is great comfort even in this passage as we walk through this world that is strewn with sickness and disease and pain and suffering and injustice. What we're going to see first off is that the Father and Son are working together in one accord. Does anyone know why Jesus is a carpenter? Why, why, why is Jesus a carpenter? Why wasn't he a mailman or something else if they had mail? I'm guessing that they did. Why, why wasn't Jesus some other occupation? Well, let me, let me give you a hint. When I was, uh, I, I love working with wood. I love woodworking. I love building things. I'm not very good at it, but I love doing it. I, I built a hutch for Trish when we first got married. I built a, a dining room table. I like to build washer boxes. I like to fix stuff. And all of this started because when I was growing up, my dad loved woodworking. And so I remember he and I working on the Pinewood Derby together. Maybe you remember that if you had that experience. But he showed me how to drill holes in wood, how to measure twice and cut once, how to uh, glue things together, right? I remember one Halloween, even I was going out trick-or-treating, and I I loved woodworking so much. I was like, I'm going to make my own mask. And so I took this plank of wood, and I put two eye holes in it and a mouth. 
with a rubber band and strapped it on. And it lasted for about three houses. And I had splinters in my nose and it was hurting. And so I'm like, there's enough of that, right? But I love to work with wood because my dad taught me how to work with wood. You see, in our culture, we don't pass on the family, the, 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 the work, the business, the family business. But in that time, that's how people became carpenters. Jesus was a carpenter because his father, his father-in-law Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter uh, because his, his stepfather Joseph taught him how to swing a hammer, how to, how to shave off pieces of stone, how to cut wood, how to piece it together, how to glue it, how to fasten it, how to fix a leaky roof. Joseph taught him these things. He learned. And as Jesus grew and learned this trade, he was giving more and more responsibility. He was entrusted with certain tasks. Now, this is the society that Jesus lived in, in which the son did what the father did. And, and it was passed on, and they were taught, and they learned, and they were entrusted with the family business. And it's in this context that Jesus says these words. And they become so much more alive when we understand that this is the culture Jesus lived in. In verse 17, he says, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. He's saying, I am in the business of my father. You know, his, his stepfather, Joseph, they were in the business of carpentry. But his real father, his heavenly father, was in the business of being God. <laughs> and he says, I am working in my father's business. This is why this statement was so offensive to them. He goes on in verse 19 and says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Again, this is a picture of the family business being passed on from the father to the oldest son, the one who would inherit the business, the one that would share in the business with his father. And so we see Jesus is working under submission of the father, under the authority of the father, subordinate to the father, he is working. Now, when we look at Newtown, Connecticut, we see churches are filled to the brim. And the reason this is, is because there is great hope that God is still at work. Even in this situation, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and their business of being God is still actively working. And that is the hope that we hold on to even in this situation. There's another quote from Johnny Erickson Tata. I have this one and one more for you. As she was Considering what had happened to her, she said this. You can follow up on the screen with me. It says, It is a glorious thing to know that your Father God makes no mistakes in directing or permitting that which crosses the path of your life. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is our glory to trust him no matter what. Real satisfaction comes not in understanding God's motives, but in understanding his character, in trusting in his promise, and in leaning on him and resting in him as the sovereign who knows what he is doing and does all things well. Jesus is in the family business. He is actively at work. That's why we go to him in prayer. 
That's why when crisis hits, there is little we can do other than to say, come, Lord Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Trusting that he will come and work even in the midst of this situation. Now, the son is given certain tasks by the father. He's entrusted with certain parts of the family business. And one of those is judgment. The son is judging in place of the father. Verse 22 says, The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Again, another claim of deity by Jesus. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. You know, I mentioned earlier that Jesus' response is very interesting. As they come and they attack him about his, his, his abuse of the Sabbath and their, and their rules, Jesus doesn't instruct them saying, you know, let me teach you what the Sabbath actually is. Jesus doesn't even go there. Instead, Jesus goes into his relationship with the Father and his authority to judge. And you may wonder, why would he do that? Well, you see, these, these Jews, these leaders... We're standing in judgment of the judge. (laughs) He was turning the tables on them. He was changing their perception. He was saying, you stand in judgment of me, but you must understand that one day, in a much more important way, I will stand in judgment of you. This is a temptation for all of us to stand in judgment of God, especially in times of tragedy and say, God, where were you? God, I thought you were good. But God stands in judgment of us. He appreciates honest questions. Don't get me wrong. But we cannot forget which one of us is God. And so Jesus flips the tables on him. Verse 28, he says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear this voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When Christ returns, and we'll talk a little bit about this more later, but when Christ returns, there will be a physical resurrection of every body. And they will be resurrected either to go into life or to go into judgment. You know, our society is bipolar when it comes to this issue of justice and judgment. On one hand, we are infatuated with justice. We love justice. We even love judgment. We love it when the bad guy gets caught. We love it when the bad guy gets what's coming to him. I mean, if you want to see how much we love justice, all you have to do is open up the TV guide. You know, just off the top of my head, I was thinking, how many cop shows are there on TV? I mean, there's CSI, there's CSI Miami, CSI New York, soon there will be CSI Green Bay, right? There's The Mentalist, there's Blue Buds, Castle, Burn Notice, NCIS, Fringe, Bones, Criminal Minds, Numbers, Monk, Hawaii Five-O. You know, the, 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 the lawyer shows are out there too. There's Law and Order, The Good Wife, People's Court, Judge Judy, I think there's a Judge Harold now. People love justice. People want justice because they're made in the image of God. But they love justice at a distance. They want their cake and to eat it too. We're bipolar because we want just judgment, but we don't want to judge. We want righteous ruling, but we don't want a righteous ruler. We're bipolar and inconsistent in those ways. 
But here's what I think is going on. On one hand, we love justice because we're made in the image of God. And God loves justice. Matter of fact, God cannot not do justice because it's out of his character. And so God always fulfills his justice. And this passage tells us that those who hate, those who have done evil will be in the resurrection of judgment. And all of us know in the depth of our heart that we have done evil against God, that we have done wicked things. And so we want judgment for Hitler. We want judgment for bin Laden. But we don't want judgment for us. We want judgment that's not applied universally, but to specific situations. Popular culture does not like this topic of judgment for the exact same reason. But here, Jesus is giving a robust understanding of justice and judgment because it's only when we understand that that we can understand the depth of God's love and grace. You know, this might sound wrong, and it probably is. Um, So give give me grace in this. But in a way, God is bipolar. And that God loves justice God must do justice. God has to have justice because he is right and true and holy. But God doesn't want justice for you. God wants mercy for you. God wants grace for you. And so the question is, how can God reconcile this? That God must satisfy his justice, but he also wants to give you mercy and grace and love. You deserve judgment, but he wants to give you life. How can he do this? The only way he could do it is by satisfying his justice upon the judge. Sending his son, Jesus Christ, who is the judge, who lived life perfectly, who took on our justice so that God's justice could be satisfied, that we never have to fear God's justice ever again. I love verse 24. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And then here it is. He does not come into judgment. If you trust in Christ, you do not come into judgment. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter what you'll do in your future. If you belong to Jesus, you will not come into judgment. That is such good news. It's the best news. It is great news. You know, it's, it's interesting how providential God is. I was in a restaurant working on this sermon and my computer decided it wanted to, you know, upload new features and it had to restart. So it's like a 15 minute cycle. And there was a reader's digest that I, I pulled out and started reading. And there was a story, it, it, this, the, the title said 10 most ridiculous stories of 2012. And so this is a ridiculous story. Okay, here it is. And I'll just read exactly what it said. It said, before his term came to an end in January, Mississippi Governor Haley Barber granted clemency, which I didn't know what that means. It means mercy, uh, to a man convicted of murdering his wife in 1993. The felon, David Glenn Gatlin, wasn't the only violent offender to be released. Barber also freed three other murderers, all of whom had worked while prisoners at the governor's mansion. Barber insists his decision was based on repentance rehabilitation, and redemption leading towards forgiveness. And that comes from the Biloxi Sun Herald. 
Such a story is ridiculous to popular culture because we want justice for other people. And yet, these men were granted grace and mercy. We do not want justice. You do not want justice for yourself. You want mercy, and God has granted it to us. This is the picture of the gospel. Paul talks about in Romans 7. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You no longer have to fear it because it has been satisfied at the cross and your debt has been paid in full. So we see the Son is working subordinate to the Father. The Son is judging in place of the Father. And finally, the Son is vivifying as empowered by the Father. I know, big word, vivifying. It means to give life. Jesus is life-giving as empowered by the Father. Verse 21, read along with me. It says, For as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Another claim of deity from Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now let's pause there for a minute. Notice the finality of this statement. It is not whoever believes in me will have eternal life in the future. It says if you believe in Jesus now and you believe in the one who sent him, that you have eternal life right now. It is part of your possession. It is part of what you own. You own eternal life right now. It goes on to affirm this. He does not come into judgment, but has, past tense, passed from death to life. If you're a Christian, you have already possessed eternal life. You have passed from death to life. I was talking with a friend this week and we were sharing about how much we take this for granted. Just like I take my wife for granted all the time. She's an amazing woman. But I take her for granted every single day. But if I didn't have her, I guarantee you I wouldn't take her for granted as much. And the same is with the life that God has given to us. Many of you have been Christians for a long time. And you have forgotten the glory that we have life. That we have been given eternal life by the Son. Now, where does this come from? Verse 25 says, truly, truly, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. You know, if you take my water bottle, in my water bottle, there is, well, there was water, right? It had water in itself. In Jesus is life. And Jesus gives it generously. He has an unlimited supply that he gives to those who believe and trust in him. And this life-giving doesn't end. Verse 28, again, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all those who are in the tomb will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good, meaning that they have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have had a transformation of their life, Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, 
you have been given life. For those who trust in Christ, you are being given life. And for those who trust in Christ, you will be given life in the future. Let me explain it. I know it's kind of confusing. James Montgomery Boyce writes about this, and so I don't want to take credit for it. But he says it this way. He says, man was created a trinity formed of three things, spirit, soul, and body. As promised when man sinned, all three of these died. The spirit died immediately. You could see it as men ran away from God. The second was the soul, which wasted away as sin crept into their hearts and into their lives. And third is the body, which died and returned to the earth. But in Christ, he makes us completely alive again. He makes all of these facets of us alive again. And he does it in the same order. First, he makes our spirit alive. When we are born again, he puts inside of us the Holy Spirit. Second, he makes our soul alive. And this is the process throughout the life in which he is taking the old man and putting it to death and bringing the new man to life. And third, he will give us a new body. And this is the resurrection that is to come. When our perfect bodies are reunited with our perfect spirit and our perfect soul to go to perfect heaven for all eternity. Before the 1492 uh, before 1492, Spanish coins showed the Strait of Gibraltar, which is between, um, actually, I don't know what the countries are. What are the countries? The Strait of Gibraltar. Anyone know? Spain and Morocco. And uh, on the coin, it says, ne plus ultra, which means no more beyond. Okay? And this was written on the coin because they thought that was the end of the world, that there was no land past it, that all there was was an eternal sea of nothingness. Well, in that year of 1492, Columbus came and discovered the coast of America. And when he returned, they changed the saying on that coin. And they now wrote plus ultra, which simply means more beyond You know, we may look at death, the society may look at death and think, nay plus ultra, no more beyond. But the Lord Jesus Christ has passed through the straits of death and rose again from the dead to prove to us, plus ultra, that there is more beyond. This is our great hope. This is our never-ending hope that we will indeed raise to new life, that this world is not all that there is. But as we face the tragedy and we see the tragedy, it makes us long for the world that is to come. Finally, the son is due equal honor as the father. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Why? That all may honor the son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so how is the Son honored? We're told in the next verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. How do we honor the Son? We honor the Son by believing that the Son came from our Heavenly Father. We honor the Son Jesus, by believing that he is the son who is equal with the father. We honor Jesus by believing 
That he is the son who is now working subordinate to the father, even in the midst of tragedy. We honor the son by believing that Jesus is the son who is the judge, but the judge who came and died for us on the cross. We honor the son by believing that Jesus is the key to life today and life eternally. We honor the son by believing that Jesus is the son who is to be honored, worshipped, and glorified as the father. We honor the son by hearing the words of Jesus and believing them even in the midst of tragedy. I want to look at one more quote from Johnny Erickson Tata. And I'll end with this. She says this. She says, you don't have to be alone in your heart. Comfort is yours. Joy is an option. And it's all been made possible by your Savior. He went without comfort, so you might have it. He postponed joy, so you might share in it. His willingly cho- he willingly chose isolation, so you might never be alone in your hurt and sorrow. This alone is enough cause for great gratitude. Let's pray. God, as we are, again, struck by the reality of the brokenness and the fallenness of this world, we are so thankful by these promises that you are still at work, that you have a sovereign plan, that you are good. And although we don't understand the why, we know the God who orchestrates everything. And we know that you are good, that you are gracious. Help us, Lord, to believe your word, even in the midst of trials, God. Lord, as we think towards Christmas, let us be reminded that Christ came to start this amazing kingdom of redemption. And let us long for the day when Christ will return to consummate it, to complete it, to make all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.